0: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. This is Casty Zachary, fashion historian, and your only host for today's episode, because April is on a little bit of a vacation, but she'll be back very soon. So from the United States to Thailand, from the Philippines to Singapore, Faith Cooper's digital resource project, Asian Fashion Archive, is dedicated to one goal and that is celebrating the beauty, diversity, and richness that is Asian fashion, culture, and history. I'm so pleased to welcome Faith back to the show. She, of course, joined us Tuesday to discuss the life and legacy of Tina Chow, and today she's back to discuss her incredible groundbreaking work. I'm so pleased to welcome her back to the show. Faith, welcome to Dressed. Hi, I'm so nice to see you, Cassidy. This is such a treat for me. You and I have collaborated uh, via Instagram. Uh, you did an Instagram takeover of the art of dress. I was so, so excited um, when I learned about your archive last year. I'm so excited you're here today to share more about it with us. Can you tell us about the inspiration behind creating the Asian Fashion Archive?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I also have to give kudos to you for that collaboration because you're the one who helped me reach um, 10,000 followers. Oh, yay! So thank- <laughs> <laughs> much um, for giving me your platform for a few posts. But a little bit about the Asian Fashion Archive. I started this initiative in May 2020. I had just graduated from FIT's Fashion and Textile Studies Graduate Program, and I had really focused during those um, few years on this relationship between the East and the West in terms of fashion dress and culture. So I was also working at the Museum of FIT at the time in the education department, and it was COVID since it was May 2020. So I had a lot of alone time in my studio apartment quarantining. And so I really wanted to have an outlet to express different feelings that I had with the anti-Asian rise in hate incidents Um, as well as using my professional academic background. So I started this Instagram account, which uh, initially just highlights different moments in history and contemporary images, related to Asian fashion, culture, and history. I didn't have any grand plan for this. It really was just sort of like a pet quarantine project, you know, and it was a way for me to have something to do. Um, And it was a safe space for myself and a way to deal with a lot of personal and emotional issues I was dealing with, with my own racial identity as someone who is Asian, Chinese American, Asian American, and biracial. So it was selfishly an initiative I created myself, you know, a form of mental therapy, but I also did it to share my research as well. And because I could not find many fashion history accounts dedicated to Asian fashion, which was really surprising to me because there are so many really great ones. And it was it's very difficult to find these images being highlighted. So it gave me a purpose, you know, to keep doing reading and researching other than I was doing in school, which had just ended. And to do that about a subject I was passionate about and that I wanted to see highlighted. And it was a great way for me. I also did it because I had a growing frustration of the way Asian people were being portrayed and treated during that time and stereotyped into one group. And at that point in 2020, in in my lifetime at least, I had never seen or experienced such a level of hate toward Asian people, you know? And I was also very angry at the lack of representation of Asian people in the field and in media. So this was, you know, a way this, through Instagram was a free platform that was available to me. And I now felt like I had enough knowledge and research just graduating and setting the subject so I could post these images to a public platform and cross my fingers and hope, you know, someone would see it. And it's been so great to see it being used as a great resource by so many.
0: Yeah. And of course, it's also a website, which is so wonderful. It's an incredible resource. There's so many different facets of the archive. And I'd love if you could share more of them with us, what people can expect, perhaps by going to the website, what they'll find there. And then also, if you wouldn't mind just explaining to us how you define Asian as well, because I think that's a term that's often, you know, people, there's so many diverse cultures and peoples that are often homogenized under that term, maybe within fashion specifically, but also within the broader conversation. So I'd love if you could kind of clarify that for us as well.
1: Yeah. So the website was a later edition. I launched in early 2021. And that was because I had people reach out wanting to learn more about Asian fashion that they were not familiar with. So I started listing Different documentaries, podcasts. There's some dress podcasts listed, books, magazines, exhibitions, articles. I also created a shop and support page that listed Asian owned businesses and designers that I liked and thought people might enjoy seeing. And my latest addition to the website is a for students page, which I guess is me using my museum education experience. So I found links to different free online resources that different museums and cultural institutions have created related to Asia and fashion and culture and history. So there are teaching curriculum guides, uh, craft pages, activity books for kids and just people who maybe just wanna learn more. And in terms of Asia for the website, I also sorted it the resources by medium as well as by different regions. So for the website, I have it sorted by Asian-American, East Asia, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. And hopefully I'll be able to expand it more because, you know, Asia is so broad. And that is a word that we kept seeing a lot this past year, you know. And it's an interesting word because even Asian-American is a recent term. I think it came out in the 1970s, you know, with my mother who is Chinese, but she grew up in Southeast Asia you know, I've never heard her refer to herself as Asian. It was always Chinese um, because if you look at what people have worn or wearing, you know, in India or Indonesia, Malaysia, it's very different than China and Japan. So I just really, especially after this past year, I just couldn't understand why and how someone could group all Asian people in a one stereotypical group a one aesthetic group. So with this initiative especially on the Instagram with the images, I really try to scatter out by different decades and time periods and countries to show how diverse Asia is, you know, throughout history. And I also divided the Instagram through different regions as well, through the Instagram memories. So if you're interested in Hong Kong, you can go to the Hong Kong little memory circle to see posts that other people have posted about Hong Kong. As well as Instagram guides that are sorted by decades and countries. So if you're interested in the 1970s, you can see a nice guide of images of what people have worn through in Asia, 1970s. or if you're interested in the Philippines, I sorted it as a sort of timeline of images of what people have worn in the Philippines or Filipino people throughout time. Um, but that was a big point that I wanted to make with this initiative, is how broad. Asia is, you know, and of course, there's Asian Americans, and there's Asian people in England and other countries, and biracial people as well. That was a point I wanted to make, because of course, that is a closed point to me as me being biracial.
0: Yeah, and you post so many incredible images every day. It's it's day. They're so wonderful. And I'm curious how you source your material because obviously you're going to a bunch of different resources, I would think, but maybe resources that aren't often used. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, Um. so the way it's sorted through the post is I have a different theme. It's six posts per theme and I post three posts at a time. And I keep a running list of different themes. So sometimes one theme might lead to another. I might focus on one historical figure or contemporary figure or one photographer, magazine designer, and try to kind of create like a mini curated exhibition theme on the Instagram. And so since my professional background is working at a college in fashion a museum education and in publishing, you know, I was very familiar with these great resources already, you know, there are so many great digital college websites with all their collections and museums, you know, and different initiatives other people have created, like the Fashion and Race Database. So some of my favorite ones, the University of Bristol has a really great initiative called Historical Photographs of China, where they have found different photographs of modern China. Singapore's National Heritage Board has a website called Roots And they have great digitized images from like the Asian Civilizations Museum, the Perenican Museum. And one of my favorites, which a lot of people don't know about, but there's such great information, is the Museum of Ethnic Costumes in Beijing. And they have some of the most beautiful um, garments I've ever seen and photographs. So I try to do, search these accredited sources, and I just have like a list for myself that I just go through each one and search the theme that I think might fit and then figure out what posts look best together. And then that's um, how that works.
0: I'd love if you could give us, I'm sure our listeners are going to look up at Asian Fashion Archive immediately while listening to this episode anyways, but I'd love if you could give us a few specific examples of the type of content you feature, maybe your thought process that goes into selecting the images, and maybe just a few specific examples of what people could
1: expect. So I, for example, today, I just posted a theme on a woman named Madame wellington Koo, And she had someone that I had wrote about in graduate school. And she's a very fascinating person who was born in Indonesia, but is also Chinese. So the, the first three posts that I posted today, she is in European fashions. So there's one image of her wearing a Worth gown. And the three posts are from 1921. And I included quotes in those posts from her memoirs. And she has written a lot about her being Chinese and her husband being Chinese and a diplomat living in Europe and saying that she was very conscious of what she looked like and how she dressed because she, you know, looked different than the rest of the Europeans. And she had said, like, what we, me and my husband do is a reflection of all Chinese people. And she felt pressure to wear European fashion to show that she did not belong to this very typical, primitive view, exotic view of what people had of China and Asia. So the next three posts, which will be posted later, is she sort of transitioned and she adopted the chi pao. Once she moved to China, she saw these beautiful women in Shanghai wearing the Qi pao and she realized, well, this dress is actually a lot, one, cheaper to buy and easier to wear. And it, So once the post, the next three posts we posted, it's a really interesting contrast between her wearing these 1920s fashion, as opposed to her wearing these cheap pals, which are so beautiful. She has a little bit of like a, in my opinion, like a light about her when she wears these cheap pals. And she talks about how she dresses them up. And you can tell she gets really excited writing about it in her memoirs. So I try to do different themes like that, that together and tell a story through the images you know it is difficult to tell these stories in a very short instagram caption so i hope sometimes i just hope the images speak for themselves but some of the other images i posted like i did one that i was really excited to post last year for chinese new year i found these great images of a chinese new year parade in chinatown in 1960 and at that time, I was locked alone on Chinese New Year. <laughs> my family celebrates Chinese New Year, um, you know, and seeing these photos of my family in Asia having these nice dinners, you know, and I wanted to go celebrate and go to a parade, but was not possible due to COVID. So I posted these beautiful photos of these families celebrating it together, these little kids in these, you know, their Chinese dress. So a lot of the things that I post sometimes are things that I wish I was doing as well. Some other people I posted was Tina Chow, who I loved. I did a paper on her for the Costume Society of America and told a little bit about her story. And then my favorite ones that I post are Asian photographers that I find. Um, It's very difficult. I have found it very difficult to find information and high quality photos of Asian photographers from the early photography days, even to the mid 20th century. So one of my favorites was I found a Thailand-based photographer who took these beautiful 1960s photographs of women in Thailand. His, he went by S.H. Lim, and those are really popular photographs to see these really beautiful, sexy women who were photographed, but weren't. it didn't seem like they were photographed like they were being fetishized. It was more seems like they were, you know, empowered. But yeah, I really try to do a range and I'm always looking for recommendations if anyone has any or wants to see um, a theme or subject highlighted.
0: Something that is so important about your work is that you are recognizing this incredibly diverse offerings of cultures across Asia in their own right. So as we've been talking about, Asia is this incredibly diverse place, but in quote unquote, Western European high fashion historically, and even today this continues, this diversity is often homogenized, it's romanticized, as you said, it's fetishized, or simply just reduced to aesthetics filtered through a Western lens. But you are showing how these sartorial traditions and practices can and should be elevated and celebrated in their own right and on their own terms. And this leads me to my next question. You are also a contributor to the Fashion and Race Database, which is similarly challenging traditional fashion narratives rooted in the Euro-American paradigm and expanding the way that we can think and define what is and what is not fashion So, I would love if you could talk to us a little bit more about the ways that the Asian Fashion Archive is contributing to this conversation on expanding that narrative surrounding fashion and fashion history.
1: That's a really interesting question. I think there's been a huge debate on what people think is fashion and not fashion. And it was a very conscious choice to name this project, uh, to use that word fashion. And I'm actually teaching an undergraduate course at FIT next year where for the curriculum, I want to explore what this word means and what they think it means and what other school, fashion scholars throughout history have to find it. The course is non-Western cultural expressions of fashion and dress, you know, and with that course and with this Asian fashion initiative, I want to make a point to debunk this idea that fashion has only existed in the West. It's not just a Western concept. You know, I don't think I've fashion as just haute couture, you know, a worth, a Scaparelli. I see it as a way for others to express a message through clothing and accessories, but rather if it's a political, cultural, or personal message. And I wanted to show with these images all various beautiful ways Asian people have expressed themselves through clothing and fashion and dress and also debunk this Ongoing narrative that Asia is associated with, you know, being exotic and mysterious and primitive. But I do not think fashion is a Western concept. So that is a point that I am trying to make with this initiative and the course, you know. And I think um, I just don't know how someone could see all these images of what different minority groups have worn over time and think, you know, fashion just exists in Paris or New York and London. So using the word fashion was very important for me to use to make that point, visually at least.
0: Yeah, and you've made that point many, many times. You've made it very well, (laughs) dedicating this entire archive to showing the ways that fashion exists in cultures and throughout history all around the world. So such, such wonderful work. And one of the other ways in which you are contributing to these important fashion conversations is through your very own research which offers a critical examination of the fashion industry's complicated relationship with Asia, to put it mildly, I should say. (laughs) One surprising example of this can be seen with what you call, quote unquote, the fashionable fantasy of Mao Zedong, not someone we may typically equate with fashion. I read your QP that you wrote for your master's thesis, that's FIT, that's on this topic. uh, And I was so taken aback by by what you're studying here. Who was Mao Zedong and what can we learn from the influence his communist regime had on fashion?
1: Yeah, that was my FIT graduate qualification paper, which was not an easy paper to write. It was actually a theme I started as my undergraduate paper at where I also went to FIT in art history. And then I was studying transition of dress during mid-century China. You know how we went from these beautiful chi pals, or even the, the men wore the, the queue, the ponytail, to these unisex militant uniforms. But for graduate school, I expanded this and I did a lot of research on it and spoke to a lot of different people. And to be honest, a lot of some people were very confused by it. So I went, I spoke to a lot of Asian scholars and fashion scholars. But this fashionable fantasy that I talk about is this fantasy that was created by Western fashion and culture and ignoring the realities of what was happening in China and Chinese life, mostly focusing on the Cultural revolution, which was from 1966 to 1976, Mao's death. But Mao was the chairman of the Communist Party of China and the founder of the People's Republic of China from 1949 to 1976. And he achieved a, um, cult of personality around the world for his ideology, which is known as Maoism. And during the early 20th century, China had suffered a lot of political unrest. They had the Japanese occupation, natural disasters, famine, a long list. So at that time, Mao was celebrated as a leader, you know, of a revolution and a new China. But in 1966, he launched the culture revolution, which initially was to denounce four olds, um, ideas, cultures, habits, and customs. And as part of that initiative, there was a group called the Red Guards, who were these young students with their own uniform, and they took violent measures to make sure people followed Mao's ideology, and they targeted wealthy classes, intellectuals, teachers, professors, artists, and unfortunately obstructed art temples and artifacts it was a 10 period period and it was not an easy time in China. Um, And some people are still, I mean, people are still alive. It only ended in 1976. So I looked at how Western media and culture and fashion, how they kind of perceived that. And of course in 1966, they did not have the resources as one does now, you know, so um, they could only educate themselves so much, but a lot of, designers were inspired by this idea of Mao and this Chinese cultural revolution. Yves Saint-Laurent, Pierre Cardin, Galliano and Karl Lagerfeld, Vivian Westwood, and different cultural movements as well, like the May 1968 protests in France against Charles de Gaulle and the French conservative government. At that time, Paris kind of Used Mao as a chic icon and an accessory there was the Little Red Book, which was a book of Mao's quotes, was popular there. The counterculture movement, you know, they had a, v- a lot of interest in revolution, rebellion and exoticism and used Mao. We also saw uh, a lot of trend terms used in Mao and WWD in Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and describing clothing. And they would call different features like the Mao cap the suit and color. And there was no one definition for each of those. They just kind of used it wherever they saw fit. And we also saw a lot of Western artists inspired by Mao that time, like the famous Salvador Dali Vogue 1971 issue with like this combination of Marilyn Monroe and Mao portrait on the cover and Andy Warhol's famous Mao portrait, which he said he did because he said China was in the news and I knew if I made a portrait of Mao, I would make money. You know? Very
0: Warhol thing to say.
1: <laughs> yeah. But the, um, the ending of my paper details the difference between a person ignoring the reality and glamorizing a very difficult time period compared to someone who had experienced a cultural revolution. You know, when someone using Mao's image to ref- reflect and process their experience or their parents and grandparents. Like, for example, one of my all-time favorite collection is Vivian Tam's Spring 1995 collection, which is extremely powerful and even today is still very misunderstood. She collaborated with a Chinese artist who lived during the Cultural Revolution and had a very difficult time. And he, after the Tiananmen Square 1989 protest, he decided he, want to, he needed to process these feelings. So he made these humorous, portraits of Mao, and then Vivian Tam put those portraits on her garments. But even when that collection came out, some people didn't even know who Mao was. They thought it was her father. And even today, I did an article about it, and I saw someone comment saying something. They thought it was like a a pro-Maoist dress, you know, but it had the opposite message. So my graduate qualification paper kind of detailed that, but I think some people still think I'm glamor, I like to glamorize Mao, but that was um, not the case. It was detailing how others have.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting because if you look at, say, like the Mets exhibition, China Through the Looking Glass, incredibly controversial exhibition, because again, many argued that it was, again, adding to that fantasy of China and, you know, reducing China to stereotypes and aesthetic inspiration, et cetera but you just would not associate mao as part of that tradition but in fact fashion was again even when you know mao was attempting to get rid of all these cultural distinctions and influences they were still looking to china and finding aesthetic inspiration and ignoring what was actually happening there? So it's it's a really interesting commentary on fashion's relationship with other cultures.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's even um, Vivian Westwood did a collection I think in 2012, like a zombie red guard Mao collection, and she said that she does not like violence, but she loves the Mao suit. You know, so she even acknowledges that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's really interesting and something you point out very very well. you mentioned Vivian, Tam. Is there any other perhaps contemporary Asian designers that our listeners should be following or paying attention to?
1: I think that's another thing I try to do with my Instagram is I try to, on my stories, we post what other young emerging designer and artists are doing. And there's just so, there's just so many, you know, and actually I, um, I wrote an upcoming essay that's going to be published soon on contemporary Chinese fashion designers who are trying to change the negative narrative of Chinese food and fashion and looking at the persecution of Chinese Americans for their use of dress and food. But one of the ones that I researched was Sandy Liang, who I love. She does really cool things. And she actually, her father owns a restaurant in Chinatown. So she does fashion shows in her dad's restaurant. I love the brand Duang. It's a New York-based Chinese-American streetwear, and they do really beautiful, like, modern cheap Pals. Chop Scooby Club is one of my favorite boutiques in New York. They do contemporary Chinese design and art. And I find a lot of inspiration from the objects in that store, different brands. Friend of a Friend is a great design studio, and they design... Clothing that actually supports nonprofits that help underserved communities. And they did a really cool collection for Send Chinatown Love, you know, trying to make nonprofits, you know, in a streetwear type aesthetic. Private policy did a really cool collection inspired by the Chinese railroad workers. And a lot of these projects and initiatives, you know, really have received. A lot of attention over the past year, and these designers going back to their heritage, you know, looking back at their past and putting them in their collection, which I think is really exciting, you know, like um another one of my favorites, which is not a designer, but it's a curated book series called Farnier. And I just I, I mean, it's some of the most beautiful publications I've seen. and they've been around for a few years, and they look at images and designers and artists related to Asia and North Africa there's just, it's so many exciting, you know, creatives, because I don't think many people think of people of Asian descent as creative, you know, we are often put in this model minority stereotype. So I really love seeing the way different Asian people are using creative platforms to express themselves. So
0: Yeah, and you are very much front and center in that conversation and that movement moving forward. I'm so excited to continue following you uh, into the future. Before you go, I'd love if you could share maybe what your hopes are for the future of fashion and the future of the Asian Fashion Archive because I am expecting great things.
1: Thank you. I mean, definitely I would like to see the fashion field be more inclusive for everybody rather if it's seeing more diverse designers writers and academics as i'm sure you were very familiar with there are such few opportunities for people who want to work in fashion and it is not accessible to everybody and that was also another reason why i created this account because i was tired of waiting for someone to allow me to share the stories i wanted to tell so i you know just did it myself you know and i want to hear Other people's stories, I'm so tired of hearing and reading and seeing the same people and stories told over and over again and twisted into different ways to try to make it different. I want to learn about other cultures too. So it's great to see other initiatives like mine, you know, pop up. Like the Fashion and Database is one of my favorite resources that I go to, you know, to read and to learn more. It's not easy learning about a culture that's not your own. It can be quite intimidating. So I wish we will see more writers and academics and cultural institutions teach about others so we can learn about it, which is one of my reasons why I studied fashion. Fashion is such a great way to tell those stories because we all can relate to clothes in some way, you know, so I hope to see more stories told.
0: Absolutely. There's a whole world out there. (laughs) Thank you so much, Faith. This was wonderful.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I love your podcast. I've been a huge fan for a while. So this is very exciting for me. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Well that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you celebrate the incredible diversity and beauty of Asian fashion history and culture next time you get dressed. You're not going to want to miss the images that accompany this week's episode. So head on over to Instagram at dressed to check them out. And remember, we always love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.